Faith Factor Impact, Episode 17. Hey everybody, welcome to Faith Factor Impact, where we hang out with today's top nonprofit thought leaders to get refueled, reconnected, and inspiration. So let's go. We don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. Great to be alive, Impact listeners. Jay Everline here, your host, and I am so excited to present to you today our featured guest, Ann Foley. Hey, Ann, welcome to the show. Well, hi, Jesse. Thank you very much for having me on your show. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Yes. Ann Foley is a perspective pilot. She helps people discover the proper perspective for solving problems, making decisions, and improving results author, speaker, and thought leader, and is passionate about helping people find their higher perspective of life by seeing it through a lens of value and peace versus scarcity and fear. So, Anne, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. We're just hanging out at the local coffee shop there in Phoenix, Arizona, and we're just having a chat. But before we get into your story, Anne, which I'm thrilled about hearing more about and sharing with our audience here, we always start the top of our show off with a reflection, a moment to quiet the noise and get focused and centered. And so can you just start us off with your reflection today? Take it away. Of course. You know, Jesse, I love that you start your podcast in this way because it's really the way I start every single day. You know, one of my very favorite parables in the Bible is shared in John 15, and I'm going to do my best to summarize it. But basically what Jesus said in that parable is he shows us a visual of a branch that's connected to a vine in order to gain nourishment and bear fruit. And I think the key takeaway for me with that, Jesse, is the need to stay connected and recharge our mind and our spirit. Mm -hmm. And so kind of the way I think about that in today's lingo is that we have to recharge our batteries. And in my case, I try to recharge with words that I know are um, timeless truths, unchanging. So I'll use all kinds of different books and, of course, the Bible, and I use videos or whatever I feel are words that give me wisdom, that keep me sort of, like you said, quieted and centered uh, so I can look at life through a lens of faith and abundance and not let the words of the world or whatever might be happening in the current situation with, uh, put fear and scarcity. And so that takes a lot of work. It takes daily practice. I do it. It's almost so much a part of my habits. It's like brushing my teeth. Mm. Um, but the second factor of that parable that I think is also important for everybody to think about is not only do we have to do this for ourselves, but we've got to let that perspective pass through us. That's sort of the part of nourishment passing through you uh, to bear fruit. And that's kind of what we all have to do, in my opinion, to uh, to demonstrate this in how we live our lives. And so that's what I am trying to do and stay connected or otherwise I think um, I'll end up like a tumbleweed, just sort of, you know, letting the wind pass me through life. And, and that's not what I want to do. So that's my reflection. 
That is so good. I think it's a great reminder. And thank you for pointing out that we start our top the show off with a reflection and it's intentional. And we share your thoughts about starting the day off right and, you know, setting the tone for the rest of the day. And for those of you listening, I would encourage you strongly, like Anne, find a routine, find something that gets you centered, right? There's so much noise, so many distractions that will keep you off your path, keep you focused from your goals and objectives. And it's uh, it's important to start the time off right. And so we try to help you by doing a reflection at the top of our show. And so we hope that that helps and that you will take Anne's thoughts about uh, starting your day off right and putting things in perspective at the top of your day. Wonderful stuff. Love that, Anne. And so we're going to jump right in here and get into your story. We're just kicking back, as I mentioned before, at your local coffee shop there. It's 89 degrees, as I understand it, there where you are. Um, it gets pretty hot here as well, uh, dry and hot in Austin, Texas. And so we want to just chat, have a conversation today and want to learn more about you personally, who you are, Anne, and what do you do? What's your story? And uh, tell us a little bit more about you, Anne. Well, First of all, let me just tell you that I love kicking back at a coffee shop. So <laughs> that's just a great visual for me. Uh, but I also love connecting with other people. And, you know, of course, every story starts when we are born and enter the river, what I call human life. Um, but I'm going to fast forward to the part of my story that has had the greatest impact on my work today. Uh, I have been married for 25 years now, and we have one son. Awesome. Congrats. Thank you. And our son just finished high school. He's now on his way to college. But I was late, Jesse, to the parenting game for very, you know, a lot of reasons. But I was already 38 years old when when my son was born. And so we were more than ready to be parents. We were elated, absolutely elated when he arrived in August of 1997. And then about 18 months later, in April of 1999, I was attending a work conference and Larry King was scheduled to be the keynote speaker at this work conference. And the moderator came on the stage and said that, because of the events that were unfolding that day in Colorado at Columbine High School, Larry was not going to be able to join us, but he was going to join us by um, satellite. So they put him in. And of course, none of us, we'd all been in this conference all day, so we had no idea what they were talking about. And so Larry started to tell us what was unfolding at Columbine High School. And Mm -hmm. as I'm sure you can imagine, the audience was shocked. Um, But here's the point part of this story that sort of had a big impact on me as after Larry finished telling everybody what had happened and again you could hear a pen drop in this audience there was a man sitting behind me that made a comment that um, children now are never going to be the same and that innocence has just died on that very day and at first, I sort of took it all in, and I started to feel very fearful. You know, I had this 19-month-old, and I thought, what kind of world have I brought this child into? And that's just kind of was my immediate reaction after I heard this man's words. But over the course of the next week, I made a conscious decision 
that I was not going to allow myself to think in those terms. Mm -hmm. And I really tried to figure out how do I change my perspective about this? Because I don't want to live in fear or feel like the innocence of a child is gone. And, you know, as often happens, words that we hear in this world can kind of shake us up and shatter us a little bit. Mm. And it did me as well. And so that's when I started my routine that I've told you about in our reflection. I thought, you know what, I have to recognize that the world, like I said, I call it a river because a river is constantly changing. Mm -hmm. And a world is our world is constantly changing. It always has been and always will be. But there are certain timeless truths that don't change with the time. They don't change with technology. They don't change with the, um, you know, conditions of the world. They're just there. And I want to find those things. And that's what I started to do and center myself every morning. And simultaneously, in my career at that time, I was learning about a problem-solving methodology that's known as now it's known as Lean Six Sigma. Mm -hmm. And it taught me about how we need to look at problems from a different angle, sometimes in order to solve them. One of my one of my favorite quotes, and I have this in every single book I've ever written, is we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. Yes. You know, basically meaning from birth until this very moment. Everything that's happened to you has formed the lens in which you see things, and it's not one-dimensional. So sometimes you've got to figure out how do you change your angle so you can see things in a different way, and sometimes that's what we have to do in order to solve a problem. So I embraced the Lean Six Sigma mindset and then learned the skill set and tool set over the next 20 years, and it, it helped me to gain confidence around problem solving. So now I use that same mindset to write blogs and to write books. And I train people on this skill set in order to change their perspective. That's why I call myself a perspective pilot. I try to help, um, you know, people find their way to a higher perspective for the joy that is inherent in every human life. And also to go to the lower perspective when they need, need to do that to find the root cause of problems and and um, solve problems and and better you know make their goals and improve results yeah so and perfect 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 i love this theme that's developing already and folks i just want to make this clear you know usually we bring on leaders that are specifically in the nonprofit space but i want to make you aware that i intentionally Uh, thought clearly about bringing Anne on because she has a skill set and she has experience that I think could help so many nonprofit leaders. And I love the fact that you, you've, you've coined yourself the perspective pilot, everything about that, the way I introduced you about, you know, seeing things through a lens of value and peace versus scarcity and fear. And so I want to get into some of that. I want to uh, get some nuggets of experience from you. You know, nonprofit work and can be pretty exhausting. Um, and there are problems that we face. I mean, part of the reason why people go into nonprofit because they've identified a problem, a passion that they want to solve. 
And then you get into it and you discover that, you know, it's a nonprofit, but it's a business and you've got to figure out how to take whatever it is you're trying to solve and scale it. And how do you, how do you, in your, in the term that you started to use, how do you get lean with that? How do you maximize your resources? How do you be more efficient? And so I want to dig into there and I want to clean some thoughts from your mind about uh, how we can, we can learn from your experience as a, as a, as a black belt, as, as I understand it, a lean six, 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 sigma, Certified Lean Six Sigma Master Black Belt and a Certified Project Management Professional. The other thing, the reason I brought you on is, again, you wrote your book, uh, The Passage of Peace. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that as well. So thanks for sharing your story. But before we get any further, you know, one of the catalysts for our show is we believe that people that are making a difference in the world have what we call a faith factor. It's uh, it's your why. It's the thing that gets you to get up in the morning every day uh, to pursue whatever it is you feel destined to make a difference in the world. And so I always ask my guests, what's your faith factor? What's your why? Why do you get up in the morning and and uh, make a decision to to make a difference? Oh, that's such a good question, Jesse. And you know what? I have to um, put it in just one word, and that word is peace. And I know it sounds cliche, but I crave peace and simplicity. And I want to spread that out into our world. I believe that when we each take responsibility for our own inner peace, we are better prepared to do the work that needs to be done. So all the your listeners have their own faith factor. And I think that in order for them to be able to do and make an impact as they want to make, they have to start from a place of inner peace. And that prepares us to do two things. Number one, to enjoy the journey and the process as much as you do the result and also enjoy the goodness that is, I think, inherent in just living this human journey. So I want to do everything in in my work to help people find that inner peace. And secondly, as I mentioned earlier, I want to help them find a skill set and tool set that helps them to solve problems because that's pretty much what most of us are doing mm-hmm. and and then to um, improve results, you know, a set, set goals, determine what are the factors that are critically important in order to meet results. And um, the 80-20 rule teaches us that 20% of your factors are responsible for 80% of your results. So if you can focus, and this is a key word, another key word I think that's important is focus on those 20% factors, you're going to have a much bigger impact on the uh, results that you're trying to achieve. So again, that word peace sounds very cliche, but to me, it's not. I think it's absolutely critical. And certainly we're all seeing the need for that in the times we're living in today. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And, um, and I think that it's critically important. You know, if you don't have internal peace, it's, it's quite difficult uh, to be effective in life. And so let me ask you this. When you think about peace and, and talk about this idea of peace, what are, 
What are some things beyond kind of what you talked about earlier in terms of starting your day off right? Are some are there some specific things that you do to find that inner peace? I mean, what what are some things that you could share with folks that would help them to maybe start thinking about that in a different way? Absolutely. Well, you know, one of the things, Jesse, that uh, ha- happens to me quite often, and I, I'm I'm sure I'm not alone in this, is sometimes because when you're working in this type of, of field, like nonprofit, or for me, I'm I'm trying to do, you know, I'm also trying to do things. Um, I have a very strong passion for trying to leave the world a better place than I found it. Mm-hmm. And I get overwhelmed because, you know, things change so rapidly and there's always, it feels to me like there's always such a wide learning curve. So when that happens to me, I tend to get polarized. I, and if I'm polarized, that really affects my whole, uh, functioning. I I get tired and all of that. So when that happens to me, what I do is I try to break things into smaller, more manageable pieces that I can, you know, rather than trying to solve everything at once, just break it down. And again, from my training, there's an important equation, probably a lot of you might remember this from your high school algebra, but they call it Y is a function of X. And in statistics, Y represents the outcome that you want to improve. And of course, X represents all the factors that impact that outcome. So the main point of that is if you're stuck, like maybe maybe um, I have been or, or, you know, like I said, you're overwhelmed, just stop and think, okay, I've got to break this down. It's too overwhelming. I'm going to break down and say, what are the factors that I need to work on? And then even pull in some data if you can. And that mm-hmm. usually starts by asking questions that you want to get answered factually through data. And that data will lead you to what you need to do in order to uh, determine the areas of focus that you can then get yourself unstuck and unoverwhelmed. Because again, if you're overwhelmed, it's probably too big a picture and you got to break it down. Yeah, no, that's great. You know, my my experience uh, with Lean um, is, uh, you know, asking the five whys. Um, and that's one of the things that I have tried to do in, in all of the areas where there's a problem, trying to understand why something happened. And as I understand it, you, you're the expert, so I'm going to ask you to, to validate what I'm saying is you continue to ask that why until you finally get to the root cause. And, and, you know, it really sometimes takes, that's why they call it the five whys to get down to the really root cause, because oftentimes, what ends up happening when we're trying to solve a problem? You talked about taking, you know, and I say, you know, eating the elephant one bite at a time, breaking it down into small pieces. Because when you look at that, I'm like, I'm never going to eat that elephant. I'm never going to get that done. And so I think that's a critical takeaway that the problems that we are trying to solve in our communities, the way that we're trying to engage others to help us in that work, it really has to be broken down into small chunks to really start making movement towards solution uh, and understanding the root cause. And so talk a little bit about that, Anne, because uh, I think that's an intriguing and and a technique uh, that can be used. Can you provide some examples, maybe some basic examples of of how that might be um, uh, applicable to our to our listeners? 
Oh, absolutely. Jesse, you are just right on the money with what you're saying here, because here's the the thing that I think is going on in our world. You know, with such a um, fast pace, you know, we're all running on that, what I call the hamster wheel of life, and things are moving so fast. When we have a problem, we tend to want to solve it very quickly mm-hmm. because that's just problems are uncomfortable. And there's no question. I'm the same way. Let, let's get it solved as quickly as we can because we don't want that un- uncomfortable feeling. The problem is if we don't take the time to solve it properly, it keeps coming back. And like you said, you know, if you don't dig down to the root cause, you're going to probably solve a symptom. Yes. And I'm going to give you a very simple example. This actually was, I was at a party a few weeks back and a friend of mine was telling us all about something that had happened at their work. They were in a meeting in a conference room and they were all done and people were walking out and and, uh, a woman caught her heel on somebody's laptop cord. They had their laptop plugged into the wall Anyway, she tripped and she hit her chin on the table and it bled like crazy and they had to even call an ambulance. And mm. he was telling us, he said, that's the that's about like the fifth time that's happened where somebody has tripped and fallen. But this, of course, was the worst one. And so I thought to myself, you know what? That's a metaphor for what we're talking about. And, and, and here's what I mean. So he said, this has happened frequently. So that's one of the key things. Do, does a problem con- repeat? Mm-hmm. If it repeats, then you know that you've got to look at what's causing it. And what we tend to do when there's a problem is we stop the bleeding. And in this case, that was literal. You know, they, of course, had to first take care of this gal, you know, right, right. and but in most of our cases, it's not literal. It's just let's get it fixed immediately, stop the bleeding. Mm-hmm. But what happens, Jesse, is most of us stop there. We think, okay, we've got this problem under control. Let's move on. And like he said, it happened five times so far this year. We're only in August, you know. And so what I find with problems is that they continue to happen if you don't, and each time they happen, they get worse. Like he said, this is the worst it's been. So you have to think about what are some of the factors. So I even asked him, you know, well, tell me a little bit about when this has happened. What are some of the factors? Well, people have tripped over laptop um, cords or people have tripped over, you know, people have their uh, computer bags there. So maybe they tripped over the handle and so those are you know those are all the various factors that are causing these problems where people are tripping as they walk out of this meeting room he said it's kind of a small meeting room so you know you you find what are all the factors and then you start to say okay well what could be some ways we could reduce if not totally eliminate those factors um you know i said well can you move, can you have everybody move their laptop bags either under the tables or way over to the walls? And, you know, even some other people at the party started talking about what they do in their office and they have cords. So people, you know, or um, 
they have laptop protectors so people don't trip. And, you know, we just started thinking about all of the things that could be done. And and that's the next step. You can't just solve a problem by thinking about what are the root causes. That's great. Once you have determined you, that whole, you've got to continue to ask why. Well, why do people trip? Mm-hmm. Well, because there's things they can trip over. Um, and so, you know, then you say, well, why are there things that they can trip over? And you just continue to get to where you're out of the symptom level and you're down to the root cause. And then once you've got that, that's when you have to start saying, all right, what can we do to fix it? And then you have to have what I often do with the improvement is I start to assemble a team Mm -hmm. because I think we're, we're uh, meant to work together, not individually. And say, okay, what can we do to solve this? And then we implement the solution. But that's kind of my example. It's just really basic, but it's it's shows you that if you just continue to just stop the bleeding, the problem comes back. Yeah, yeah. You know? Absolutely. And I, I want to add to that a little bit and, and uh, help folks maybe think about, you know, sometimes it's not even a problem per se. You know, one of the examples that I have seen happen with um, a, an organization that was serving their community, their homeless, and they had gotten a, a huge shipment of food uh, from a particular donor, and they had a, a lot of folks. It was taking them half a day to feed the folks that they were trying to feed. And so sometimes it's a matter of movement and waste. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that they did is they came in and they looked using some of the lean methodology techniques as they looked at movement, you know, how many, t- how many steps does it take to get say a sack lunch as an example from this side of the line to the next side of the line, they looked at queuing. And so do you have bottlenecks in your queue and what they were able to do in this example, and I won't unpack it, uh, but just to give folks a, another way to think about how you can use this, these techniques to improve improve your programs, et cetera, is they were able to shave off 30 minutes, 30 minutes. They didn't, they didn't add resources. They didn't, uh, they didn't, ha- they didn't have money for that. Right. And oftentimes we don't have money for that. Um, we, we, you know, in a nonprofit space, we, we are oftentimes trying to solve big problems on small budgets. And mm-hmm. so if you can pick up 30 minutes every week, week in and week out, to serve uh, the folks that everybody wins. Everybody wins. You're serving people quicker. They get to eat faster um, in this particular example. And everybody gets to go home feeling good about the work that they did with an extra few minutes on their hands. So, And Jesse, can I add to that? Because yeah. you really are singing my song now. I just love it. <laughs> it the, the thing that there's two words I want everybody to remember when they're thinking about um, problem solving or, or running a, a nonprofit. And, and those are efficiency and effectiveness. Efficiency is what you've just spoken about. You know, what can we do that will be, you know, faster, better, fewer steps? Is there anything we do that doesn't really add value? Mm -hmm. And we all have those things. Yes. And, you know, that's what the tendency, as you said, when you have something that's maybe not fast enough, uh, or, not effective or whatever is to throw more resource at it, more bodies, whatever. But most of us don't have money to do that. And it's really not necessarily the right thing to do anyway. 
you'd be surprised. I have hundreds of projects that I've worked on over the years where we have actually been able to do exactly what you said. We've been able to just investigate the process, the factors, and see where do we have things that are not efficient and where are we not effective. You know, sometimes we can be very efficient at doing something that doesn't need to be done. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, that's not effective. Right. So you have to combine those two. But um, it's so important. And that that's really one of the things to think about. And, and that's why I try to change people's perspective, because maybe our mindset always tells us, hey, we just need more people. Yeah. And that's human nature. But I have found that almost I'm going to say close to 90% of the problems I've looked at over my uh, career, which is 20 years now, we have been able to improve without adding more people. Love that. Love it. I love it when I have to add resources and I can still improve something. Good stuff. So, Wayne, let me ask, um, is there a specific resource uh, that that's out there that's free, uh, ideally, that folks could go to to learn a little bit more about some of these techniques and tools? Is there anything that you uh, can, can reference and share with us today? I know I, I didn't prepare you for that. So No, 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 that's okay. Well, you know what? In today's world, of course, you can get all kinds of things on the internet. There's lot of good videos on YouTube. Um, one of the ones that I like, if you're trying to show people how to, you know, change their mindset or to, to make a um, point of the fact that we don't see things always in, that, that we think we see, there's a little video called um, the Gorilla and basketball players, and it's on YouTube. You can go up and look at that. That kind of sh- makes a, a point of how we sometimes don't see things that are right there in front of yes. us, and we have to change our mindset in order to see it. Um, there's also a lot of videos on both Lean and Six Sigma. There's also a resource that I like if you're looking for specific case studies, and it's um, called I like the letter I, six sigma, S-I-X, S-I-G-M-A dot com. And what they have is a search capability. So let's say that you're trying to find nonprofit case studies where they've applied Lean Six Sigma to that. You can just search nonprofit case studies and they will, you know, pull up case studies and show you examples. So that's a really good resource as well. And it's free. Fantastic. Free is good. And folks, don't worry. I'm going to post all of that on the show notes page. So head over to the com, And if you search for Ann Foley's show notes page, all of the resources will be right there. And so I just want to impress upon nonprofit leaders, folks in the nonprofit space right now. You can, you know, we we look for people to give us funds, as an example. The more that you can demonstrate in your organization that you're a lean, you're a lean machine, um, people will be even more excited about giving to you because they see that you're getting results and you're doing it in the most efficient way 
possible. And so intentionally brought Anne on the show to talk about some of that, as well as her work in terms of being a prospective pilot and peace. Uh, but I really want to impress upon you to uh, go look out for some of those resources and, and consider them for your organization. And so, Anne, we, you've worked with a lot of folks across the country. And so talk to me about what is one of the most defining moments uh, along your journey from a leadership perspective that has really influenced how you approach your work and the teams you've been able to lead and be a part of? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I'll tell you something, Jesse. Uh, when I was, I think I was in my early 20s or mid 20s, I met a leader that had a, a big impact on my life. And uh, his name is Jack Welsh. He's pretty well known. Some of you maybe have read some of his books. He's yes. got quite a few books out there. Uh, but at the time, I was working in a division of GE, and he came into our to our center, and he and I met him, um, and he was just so interesting. First of all, let me just tell you a little bit about him because this is important to the story. He, as a child, stuttered. And he's also fairly short. I think he's maybe about five, 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 six. Mm -hmm. But he, as a child, was, of course, teased and bullied and whatnot. And so he talked about that his mother just emphasized to him, um, you know, the importance of his value and on this world and that he because of his stuttering, he learned how to become a really good listener. When he came into our building, I was struck by his curiosity and his ability to listen to us. And he would just ask great questions. And, and you could tell in his eyes that when he asked a question and you answered, he was listening to you intently. Mm -hmm. And then he would repeat. And so one of the things that I learned right then and there, because I think a lot of leaders tend to come in and want to tell you everything, yeah. you know, they have a speech plan, they're ready, and they just, you know, want to impart all their wisdom on, on you. And he was exactly the opposite. He made you feel so good. And he made everything you do seem like it was the most interesting to, thing to him at that very moment. And so I wrote down, I remember this in my journal, be curious and be confident. Yes. And those two things. And he was, I was struck by him about first how curious he was and second, how confident he was. Because it takes someone to have a tremendous amount of confidence. And now let me just say, I know you all know this already, but confidence and arrogance are not synonymous. Not. <laughs> they are totally different things. A confident person doesn't need to be talking all the time. Mm -hmm. They don't need to to know all the answers. You know, they need they are curious and they ask good questions and then they are, you know, very confident in their ability to take what you've told them and turn it into information that will be useful. So that was one of the things that really struck me. And I've tried over the years 
to be the same type of leader. And maybe that's what drew me so much into Lean and Six Sigma, because as a um, my undergraduate degree was journalism. Mm-hmm. I was a writer. I wanted to be a writer. I never imagined that I would get into something like statistics or process control. It was way out of my wheelbox, but I was drawn to the asking questions, seeking answers, the, you know, the confidence it gave me to solve problems. And, and I like to solve mysteries too. That's the curiosity in me. So those are two, two, I think, very important leadership skills that, uh, I have had a great impact on me curiosity and confidence I, that is so good so good Jack's one of my favorite leaders of several of his books and man you couldn't have picked a, a, a greater example in terms of what's influenced your journey so one of the things and we try to do here is you know we there are a lot of books written about what to do as a leader um, and you know here's what you should do here's what you uh, here's how to get results etc but I like to, to to flip that on its head a little bit and ask you know kind of what are the don'ts of leadership there there are some some specific things. Um, some have called them fatal flaws, et cetera, that, that leaders just, you know, shouldn't do. Don't do this. You know, if, if you're going to be in leadership, you know, be careful not to go down uh, that road as an example. And so could you share your thoughts about some don'ts of leadership? Sure. I think personally, one of my um, things I try to avoid is the temptation, and this is probably uh, just elaborate on what I said earlier, to try to be a know-it-all and to try to, um, you know, be the one with all the answers or whatever. It's, uh, you know, I view myself as a facilitating leader. Mm-hmm. And I think if you could gain any skill, if you don't have it already, and we all can always improve all skills, but facilitation is critical because I try to make sure that everybody always knows, whoever's following me or I'm leading, that I view their value as important as any value I bring to the team. As And I view everybody's value as equal. And the fact that we all have different strengths and weaknesses, I usually start my meetings by talking a little bit about the importance of working together as a team. And I say that I believe that our strengths are there to help us share and help others and our weaknesses are there to accept help from others. And that's really an important skill too. You've got to be able to accept others' help because they need to feel like they have value too. If you think you have all the value in the room, then others must not be valuable. Yeah. And if they're not valuable, you don't need them. So of course they are valuable. So it's very, very important, I think, to... um, Make sure that you are not the know-it-all. You're a good facilitator. You have to avoid coming across as the know-it-all and the person that's there to, you know, solve everything, do everything, you know, that you really are there to support them, be the coach. Um, That's my feeling of something that I think people are more likely to follow you and be on board with you if you make them realize that they are just as valuable and just as important to the team as anybody else. Ooh, and so many good nuggets here. You know, one of the things that I learned and I'll, that'll go right along with that is if you're the smartest person in the room, there's a problem. 
Exactly. You know, if you if you haven't surrounded yourself as a leader with other people that are smarter than you, I promise you, you're missing something. And so, such good stuff. Don't, so true. And you know what, Jesse? Smart is relative. It is. You know what's smart? I mean, that's could be smart in what you know. So it's we all have our strengths and weaknesses, and you want a combination of people who have the different uh, strengths and weaknesses or strengths that you need. It's like I always tell people: I don't want a whole team of goalies. You know, I need a team of different people that have different lines of sight and different skills and different talents. But everybody needs to participate in the game in order for us to progress. Nice, nice. And if you could talk to your younger self, little Ann, what advice would you give her? Mm, That's a good question, Jesse. Well, lots of things. Uh, Number one, I would say uh, start early to form habits um, and, you know, really impress upon myself that habits will form you if you, you know, form good habits. So I didn't learn that till later in life. And so I'm, I would start that earlier. Um, Another one I would say is just to stay connected to the vine. Again, another thing I started later in life that, well, I told you when I started, I was already 38. (laughs) So uh, I wish when I was younger, I would have done the routine I have now, which I start every day with exercising my body and showering my mind. And that's the two things. That's exactly what I call them. I, um, this, the exercise of my body is to bring in serotonin and the chemicals you need for the mind. And then the, the words I read, and I have all different sources. I don't read the same thing every day. Or if something strikes me, I might read it many times in a row. But uh, I start by trying to get rid of all the things that I don't want in my mind, bring in things that I do want in my mind, and uh, that's how I start. Sweet. Can you share one book that you've read that has had a lasting impact on the way you approach your work? Oh, this is without a doubt The Greatest Salesman in the World, and it's written by Og Mandino. It was written, I believe, in 1960-something. Og has since passed away, but boy, is it a great book. And it's a a book you can sit down and read in one setting, and I would encourage you to do that, those of you that haven't read it. Um, You know, if you can carve out on a weekend or some time to sit three, four hours and read it all the way through, it's... It it really was one of the most impactful books I've ever read. Great book. It's a goodie. And and why don't you take a, another minute and share with us a few uh, of the books that you've written yourself? Well, my first book was written not too long after the experience that I talked about at that conference. Uh, and it's called The Passages to Peace. And it is a novel because what I did is I wrote 13 passages. And if anyone has any interest, they these are up on my website. Um, and I know Jesse will have that on his page. But uh, you can go to my website. You'll see it says uh, 13 perspective passages. And so we're all just trying to do our best to, you know, live a good life. And that's kind of what this book is hopefully designed to remind us all. Great. And so where can folks go to find out more about you? Well, my 
website is www.authorannfoley, and Ann is with an E, A-N-N-E-F-O-L-E-Y dot com. Nice. Folks, head over to Visit Ann. And we say on the show all the time, the difference between the you now and the you later are the people you meet and the books you read. And you've been listening to Ann Foley and Jay Everline. And thank you so much for joining us on the show today, providing so many valuable nuggets and for making a difference in your community. Oh, Jesse, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And thank you for doing what you're doing. I'm enjoying and learning a lot from listening to your podcast as well. So thank you for having me. Thank you, Ann. Everybody, when you have a chance, head over to faithfactorimpact.com to access the show notes page and all the references and resources mentioned during the episode today. And until next time, folks, let's go make an impact.